Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're talking with Luis Caballar. I asked Art of the Cut fans who I should interview, and his name came up from several people who cited his work on the TV series Narcos. Luis, who started cutting TV spots, has cut numerous feature films including Amores Peros, The Devil's Double, Sin Nombre, Unknown, and Cronacas. And as you'll hear in the interview, he was Guillermo del Toro's first choice to edit Pan's Labyrinth as well. Buckle up for a really great discussion with an editor who knows how to talk about his craft. Yeah, we had a, a music supervisor um, towards the end. We kind of tempted with what we could. Uh, I'm not really uh, a connoisseur in, in hip-hop and that stuff. Uh, so I said from right from the beginning that I was going to need help on that sense, you know. Uh, there was uh, the music was not really scripted. Only when the detective Rivers is driving with Mouse, that he, he actually sings with it. He used to sing a lot more and sing with the music. So they needed to have the rights for that cleared before while shooting. Obviously, we did have a music supervisor, and uh, because we knew there was a lot of uh, cues that we were gonna be using, we tempted with different stuff from uh, either Angel or even Kaylee Pinkett would suggest, uh, one, of, one of the producers, or even Clarence Hammond. So right from the very beginning, we kind of decided to embrace this idea of a colorful movie, you know? Uh, one of the great things with the music uh, from an editing standpoint that I really liked was there's places where it starts out full, like a needle drop of some hip-hop music, some rap music, and then it becomes diegetic. And there's other places where it starts diegetic and then becomes a full cue. Can you talk about those? Yeah, that's something that I really like. I enjoy that. And sometimes it's a way to keep a, a track for a longer time. And also it's something that turns, that morphs, you know? Uh, so it's kind of nice to hear uh, music in the in the background that then turns into into something more in your face uh, so you can actually hear it. So, I mean, it's just an editorial decision. And, and again, we kind of embraced it. And same thing with the, with kind of like with the sounds and with the ambience. I heard in the dailies it was very colorful and there was lots of ambience and, and whatnot. For example, there's a lot of trains in the movie because I noticed there was trains sometimes in the audio track. And I asked, and they were like, yeah, there's trains uh, all over the place here. So I asked uh, the director, and he was cool with it. So instead of trying to avoid it all the time, we decided kind of to embrace it. So sometimes in the background, you hear some trains. So sometimes they cleaned it first and then included some trains, or, or they just kept the tracks we had. I've cut some movies that have shot down in Georgia during the summer, and you can't ignore the cicadas, you know, the sounds, and you're like, we just have to embrace it. It's just got to be part of the movie. You got to make them louder, if anything. Exactly, exactly. For example, in this case, they did shoot in Baltimore. So, so I mean, 
is the real sound is the, the way it sounds. So why don't you just keep it, you know? When you were doing the switches from diegetic to full score and re in reverse, did you just do that with a simple volume change in your offline and then they tweaked it in the sound design? Or did you really try to do something that more sounded like it was coming from a radio in your cut? Yeah, in my cut, I, I use either a, an EQ or a plugin, an audio suite, um, uh, to try to make it more similar. Uh, but don't go crazy on that. No, absolutely. Um, and the sound design, I really loved the sense that you knew where you were, that you felt like you were really in that place. Can you talk to me a little bit about putting that stuff in and how it led to the believability of the movie? Yeah, the sound design was uh, was tricky on my end uh, because there was a lot of sounds and with the bikes, it's it tends to become problematic because it's very hard to to control a bike, you know? The bikers going behind, it's always problematic. So we did have to deal with all that. And I mean, you always preserve the dialogues first and you build from there. It's all, you have to feel the, the movie, what the movie wants. And, and we thought it was kind of cool to treat the sound design like that. I felt like there were radios and there were people talking and you had a sense of the, the neighborhood more than, you know, obviously the, the action scenes, you're getting those bikes, but a lot of the quieter scenes you're really feeling kind of the joyousness or the kind of urbanness of the environment through the audio. Yeah, I think it's part of the colorful sense of the movie, you know? So as an editor, you have to kind of work with that to have more sounds when in the right places and less sound in the right places. So you create uh, peaks and valleys and, and moments for resting and and moments for not resting, you know? Uh, it's funny because sometimes a few little sounds in the background can make a scene potentially more silent because then you realize everything is silent and then you, you get to hear little tiny things here and there. So it gives you a sense of calmness. Yeah, there's a scene like that that I was thinking of with the audio, which was when the midnight click first arrives and this group of bikers that are going to become central to the film, but the, the beginning of the movie, you don't see them or hear them. When they finally arrive, um, Mouse talks to his girlfriend, Nikki, who these people are. And, and it was very loud, but when they start having this conversation and he starts talking to her about the importance of them, the audio really changes to something that is not realistic it's more romanticized exactly exactly and that's exactly the idea to to give it a feel of the love he has for the bikes and the bikers so what we wanted to convey is that idea of him really loving that really digging all that world you know um another thing that i wanted to talk about which i love talking about intercutting and I wanted to talk about a scene where Mouse, this main character in the movie, is on this bike that he's supposed to be delivering someplace else. And instead, he goes and picks up his girlfriend, Nikki, and they go for a ride. And as they're riding through the streets, instead of hearing them ride through the streets, you're listening to a conversation that is about to happen. Can you talk to me about whether that was scripted that way or was it scripted as two separate scenes and how did you cut that together? It was pretty much scripted as three different scenes because... Uh, three? Yes, because uh, when they would get into the bike and start driving, there was a little bit of dialogue there 
then at the end, the third scene, you would see the dialogue that is actually in, in the movie. But the ride to that place would take a long time to for them to get there. And there's uh, obviously some beautiful shots that we didn't want to lose. And, and you want to tell the story on how they did get there and show the, the city. So we kind of came with this idea of using part of the of the audio underneath the, um, the writing to that place, you know. And that gives you a chance to manipulate what is being said there. So part of that is, is uh, actual voiceover. Was intercutting it something that happened as a process throughout, or did you at one time have them cut as three separate scenes? It was uh, from the assembly, you try to put everything as a whole to see what the works, scripted. the way it's scripted. It's important because that way you realize you and the directors can see what they shot and and then they can start having their own process because that happens a lot with editors. There's dialogue you could cut right from the start and you know you're going to cut it, but it's not a good idea to cut it right from the start because uh, that the only thing that that is going to do is to point it out to the director so he's going to want it back and then you'll never be able to take it out again, you know? <laughs> uh, obviously, we cut it for, for the best of the movie, obviously, right? But you need to give the director his uh, uh, own process. So he needs to see that scenes are longer than needed, that scenes are breathing more than necessary, so then you can start condensing. In this case, when I did the first pass, I knew it was not going to work that way, but I still left it like that so we could talk about it. And then uh, and then once uh, me and Angel were cutting together, we knew that what had to be condensed. So, And then at some point we came with that idea, you know. And if you if you notice, it's a little similar to the, what we were talking before. It's like he's talking from the heart in the same way He's talking from the heart when, when he sees the, the MNC coming and talking to Nikki, you know? Yeah, it's a very emotional scene about the boy talking about what his older brother wanted wanted to take him to the ocean, mm. right? I mean, there was other things, but that's what I remember from that yes. scene was yes, the discussion yes. of the ocean. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I really like that. Um, I, people are that listen to this podcast regularly know this about me as the first movie I ever cut. I did exactly what you say not to do, which was cut a bunch of stuff that you knew was going to be cut out. Oh, yeah. And then the director goes, where's my stuff? Then you look bad. Exactly. <laughs> or, and in all fairness, you have to give the director the opportunity to, to go through the process because they, they do need it. You know, they go and shoot and they have a vision. You don't know what is going to end up looking like. Oftentimes they, they have an idea of how to cut it. They could even tell you, like, I would like to start with the wide and, and go closer at the end kind of thing. And then when they, they need to watch it, they have the right to watch it like that before you change it. You might go and, and see uh, after two shots that it doesn't work, but you still need to respect the right to see things the way they, they envision it. And it's easier for the process in the sense that once they see it, they go like, oh, okay, it doesn't work, let's do something else. And the same happens with, uh, with scenes. Uh, there are scenes that you know you're going to have to cut out of the movie um, for a number of reasons. And it's not a good idea to cut them right from the beginning because the same thing is going to happen. They're going to 
notice and they're going to want to keep it longer than necessary, you know? Yeah. I did a, I did a video essay with this guy edits and we talked about that exact same thing that the director really needs their process. They need to live with it. Just like you got a chance to live with it to go, ah, yeah, this isn't working because otherwise if, if you just cut it and they don't get that process, they're never going to trust that process because they didn't get to go through it. Of course. And, and from the start, there's a reason they did that scene, you know? It's not like people go and shoot scenes just for, for <laughs> <laughs> throwing money into the trash can, you know? That's uh, true. And sometimes it, it, it hurts to cut, cut things out. But I mean, at the end, you have to do it and you have to go through that process. Oh, and by the way, uh, in my opinion, we shouldn't call it uh, editor's cut because it's not really your cut, you know? You didn't have uh, time to do your cut and you're not really cutting everything you would like to cut, you know? I completely agree. So what do you call it? I call it the assembly. Yeah, just the assembly. People call it uh, the editor's cut even closer to the final cut and uh, producers calling the editor's cut like, yeah, remember the editor's cut was so bad, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's, that was one of my problems when I, when I wanted to cut those scenes before the director had a a choice was, it was my ego. I didn't want it to look like I thought those lines belonged in there. Exactly. So you had to you had to subvert your ego to be able to do that assembly because it's not the way you wanted it. Yes, and you're not going to have time for doing that, you know. But you didn't have time to to work your cut and come with a finished product, you know. Like to say this is my cut, you know. Or the editor's cut would take a year instead of two weeks. Exactly, exactly. It would take a lot longer and it would be probably better. It could be even be better sometimes. Than the... <laughs> we won't go there. Yeah, we won't go there. We won't. <laughs> um, there's a, a great confrontation between Mouse and his mom uh, near the end of the movie. I don't know how much we can talk, uh, how how well you can talk about it without revealing what the deal was, but... There are very few cuts in that scene. It's largely handheld. I think it's largely handheld. Yes. And when I first watched it, I literally thought it was a oneer, which is a tribute to you because mm. it, I didn't see edits. And I had to actually rewind and go back and like, oh, nope, there's an edit. There's another edit. There's yeah. another edit. It's like three or four edits, but it's quite a long scene to play with that few edits. Yeah, uh, that scene uh, is really nice. Uh, and I had a uh, version where I started cutting a lot more. Uh, not like lots of cuts, but but you tend to cut more. And we editors need to learn over time to to let things uh, breathe and let uh, not to cut, you know, because we're editors and we tend to cut and we're thinking always where we can cut, you know. <laughs> so so oftentimes editors end up overcutting things, you know, and which is harder for, uh, for the pacing of, the, of a film because, uh, in my opinion, the more you cut, the longer the movie is going to feel. And I learned that cutting commercials because uh, we would have, for example, 60-second commercial and then they would ask for a lift to 40, but they want everything, the same thing, but in 40 seconds. So what you do is you just trim shots, you know, you take some shots out, but uh, you cannot take many because they want them. 
So you end up uh, trimming everything to fit in the, into 40 seconds. And oftentimes, the, especially the agency would come and say like, oh man, it's even better because uh, it feels like it's longer. And <laughs> the reason for that, I think, is because there's more cuts, so it demands your brain to pay more attention. So the more attention you pay, it seems that the time gets expanded somehow. Wow, that's interesting. It, it is very interesting. So in my opinion, it happens also in a movie. Every time you do a cut, your brain needs to adapt. And there's this trend now that uh, directors want to do every cut a different angle, which is nice, looks nice, and is kind of refreshing. But also your brain needs, needs to adapt. For example, if you're cutting a conversation and you're cutting back and forth the same angles because you, you go to character A and then to character B, uh, and then you cut back and forth, your brain already knows that every time you cut, you're going to go back to the same thing. And, and once you see your brain sees the first frame of it, already knows what it is. So your brain doesn't really need to figure it out every time if you're switching angles. Every, ang- every new angle, it needs to figure out what it is. Your brain's trying to figure out the geography of where's the camera, where's the person, what's, exactly. the, what's the relationship. Exactly. So, so you make your brain work more in that sense, not in the story. So it's just more complicated. So sometimes it's better not to cut that much. And in the case of this scene, going back to, to what we were talking about. The confrontation scene between Mouse and his mom. Yeah, it was really nice, the energy they had together. So it was more about respecting their performance, kind of as a warner, and just intervening in the, in the places where it was needed. But we realized it was better to leave a, a longer scene than, than shorter, you know? Yeah, no, I, I was thinking the same thing about respecting the performance because both actors are killing it in that yeah. scene. So just let them do their thing, right? Yes, yes. And in that sense, we had a we were kind of lucky. And and I mean, by saying that, I would uh, give a hand to to Angel, the director, uh, because he came with a cast that really, really worked. And I think uh, that's one of the key elements of this movie. Not only the script, which is very good, and the fact that. Is really something that I like about the movie is that is the is this kid the story of this kid with his friends and there's tons of layers below that. It still goes and tells a, a story that is not that complicated. But if you see, you can you can dig into all the layers there. There are a lot of layers in the movie, and Angel came with a casting that really works. He had to combine non-actors with kids, young actors, with experienced actors. And that he really he really nailed it. And if you see the the synergy the kids create together is awesome. Right from the start, I saw it and I was like, wow, this is this is gonna be great because you're always a little concerned when you're cutting um, movies with kids or non actors or non experienced actors or whatever you want to call it. You're concerned about the performance and and you're gonna have to work a lot with a with those. And I did have to obviously work a lot with performances, but uh, the synergy between the three of them made the day, you know. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Luis Caballar. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. 
This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on filmtools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to filmtools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Luis Caballar. These are, for those who haven't seen the movie, young kids. The, the three main people or maybe four main people in the movie are 12 or 13 years old. Yeah. They're probably not experienced actors. And I wanted to ask you because the performances throughout the entire movie are outstanding. Can you talk to me a little bit about working with performance, molding performance, what do you do when you're looking at dailies to to find those beautiful nuggets that are in the movie? Yeah, actually, um, it was a little painful because uh, there was a lot of really good stuff that we had to take out at the end. For example, the Swear to God uh, is a really funny guy, and he would uh, ad-lib uh, jokes left and right. <laughs> yeah, so there's for, for those who haven't seen the movie, Swear to God is the name of one of the three boys. Exactly. This is the nick- nickname. Yes, yes. Because um, in a way, these three kids are, you could say, is like the good, the bad, and the funny, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me very much of kind of like uh, the Bill Cosby show, you know, it's the fat, you know, <laughs> the fat Albert. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so it's really nice. They create a, a great synergy, uh, the three of them together. So it was uh, beautiful to watch them go at it, you know? And you do have to mold performances and you need to figure out what is the tone of the every scene. Because obviously you could have, uh, going with the, same, with the same line, you could have a scene that had a few, few jokes and then the following scene would also have jokes. So you cannot keep going. It's not a comedy, so you cannot keep going with that. So you're going to have to choose where you put the, the joke, you know, and how many jokes and, and stuff like that. And the same things goes with, uh, with drama, you know. So you're always uh, molding and sculpting and, and trying to come up with something that, that works. Especially if you've got a transition, right, between a funny scene and a very dramatic scene, you might want to take the funnier scene less funny or more funny, depending on how much, what kind of a transition you wanted between those two scenes. Yeah, at the end, it's all about feeling it or getting to the best place possible, you know, which is kind of hard because uh, it's hard to be objective when you're watching everything, you know. Mm-hmm. What kind of discussions did you have with the director about tone? I think tone is so important in a movie, and one of the real things that a director brings like that's the one of the important things i think a director brings is what's the tone what kind of talks were you guys having about that i mean we would kind of discuss what was best for every scene in general there is a the tone is already there in the dailies because they obviously go for for a specific tone but uh inside that uh there's a, a range and every scene you can modify it a little bit or or a lot so it was more in the scene by scene basis for example Langfield would suggest uh, a shot 
And I would say, yes, don't you think, but don't you think this is a little too big or this is a little too small? Or, and then we would kind of talk about it and, and decide together. But uh, in the editing room, Angel and I were more like friends, you know, talking to each other and deciding what's best and trying things. And, and sometimes they work and sometimes they didn't. So we had to keep going at it. I love it. Did you watch the documentary before you edited the movie? The movie is based on a documentary about the same group of people. The word I think it says in the movie says inspired by. And yes, I did the I did watch the documentary. It's really nice. It's it was shot a long time ago, so I think it was shot with uh, like handy cams and stuff like that. Obviously, the quality of the picture is not is not really good, but uh, you get to see the actual mouse and you get to see the actual bike riders and and how that life. Yes. So I, I did watch it and I watched it even before being interviewed because I knew it was based on that. When you get interviewed, you obviously get the script so you can talk about the script. And I watched the, the documentary. And when I met with Angel, we pretty much were on the same page. I think he liked me in the sense that, that I tend to be passionate uh, about things. And I what I like about movies is movies that have humanity. The humanity in the scripts is what I'm looking for, you know, because I think is what we like in movies is the human values that are in there, you know. It took some time to get the, the gig, but uh, finally we, we got it. As right from the beginning of the interview... I realized he is a passionate guy and talented. So I was not surprised by that, but I really liked that. And I saw his commitment to do this movie the right way. So that's something that I really liked about it. There's quite a bit of handheld in the movie. Is there a trick to editing handheld or is there a trick to watching dailies that are handheld? Not really. Uh, you just go for it and it's trial and error. Obviously, you need to control the the movement of the camera. And it could be complicated in the sense that, that sometimes you leave things that are a little b- bumpy because of performance. And sometimes you have to cut nice things because they are more bumpy than than you can afford, you know. And obviously, the the more you use bumpy stuff, uh, the less uh, handheld you can use, you know. At the end, you have to go for, for performance first, as long as it's not jarring. And if your movie is good and it's telling a story, people is not going to really mind uh, some of the bumpiness, in my, in my opinion. There's people that don't like to have any bumpiness at all, but I caught lots of movies. Like, for example, Amor Sparrows was all handheld and it, the camera is moving all the time. So uh, I'm used to that, you know. That's one of those things that I've talked about with people that have cut a lot of handheld stuff is the idea that not only are you looking at performance and the bad technical things, but there's also like, oh, trying to make note of a cool camera move or a little bit of where the camera movement is almost part of what you're going to want to make note of when you're doing uh, looking at dailies. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Obviously, there's um, uh, some gems uh, that happen uh, by themselves. Uh, over time, you start realizing that is the, the job of the editor is not trying to to shine. You know, it's you shine when the when the movie is is uh, well cut and 
And by that, I mean when the story is, is well told. And that is your main job. Your, your job is to make everyone's job look great, especially the whole movie, you know, the big picture. So at the end, you're serving that and not trying to make great cuts. Uh, obviously, when you can, you do it because also you like it. So if you have the opportunity, you go for it. But uh, if you start taking decisions based on that, you're not going in the right way, you know. A shot that I can think of, and I don't want to call out either you for using it or the DP for shooting it that way, but I loved a mouse gets a first kiss that is surprised to him. He's shocked kind of by it. And there's a beautiful moment as after the kiss, he's kind of, you know, living in this, this kiss that he got from this girl and the shot goes out of focus a little bit. And you're like, yeah, I noticed it as an editor, but the performance is so good. And the moment yes. is so good that you, you go like, who cares? Exactly. Exactly. Those are things that you face as an editor, and and that's the difference between different editors. Uh, that's where you bring your your uh, not only your expertise but your feeling, you know. And it's where you dot the eyes, you know. Uh, if you let it linger a little bit more, if you decide to leave that softness in the in the shot or not, you obviously see something that is soft focus and you want to cut out of it, you know. But sometimes you need to, to let it breathe for a moment or or how long you every every shot takes, you know. And I've been in films where you just do a whole pass just checking for silences, how long the silences are. Because uh, obviously if you make a, a big pause in the important part of a scene, it makes a bigger impact if the previous ones are not that big. If you have a tons of, of big pauses, when you do the important one, it's not going to feel right, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a voiceover thing. If you worked on TV spots before, you know that a good voiceover person, they leave those pauses just before, just after an important word. You don't just run through everything at the same speed. Exactly. For the rest of the audience that's listening, I'm enjoying this conversation so much, but one of the reasons why you're on the podcast is because multiple listeners, regular listeners to Art of the Cut said, I have to talk to you. Mm. They they asked for you. And I can definitely see why, because uh, I am really enjoying this conversation and everything that you're having to say about editing. So thank you. Oh, not, not a problem. It's my pleasure. And actually, I can tell you a little bit of my story, how I, I how I am here, you know, Um I was living happily in Mexico City. Uh, you know, I caught uh, Amores Perros and um, I had caught a couple more. Uh, Chronicles, which is a really good movie that uh, didn't get enough attention. It's the first movie with uh, John Leguizamo where he speaks Spanish. And he didn't really speak very well Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was a challenge. It was a challenge, uh, but, but I think it's a really nice movie. By the way, my last podcast was about his first movie as a director, Critical Thinking. Oh, oh nice. Interesting. Um, so continue. Anyhow, so you got the movie. You're in Mexico City. I was in Mexico City, and then my agent called me. I didn't have an agent, so they called me and said, like, hey, uh, we would like to represent you in the USA, you know? And I was like, oh, that's cool. But at that time, I was supposed to cut Pan's Labyrinth. That was going to happen five months from that time. 
two weeks later, she, uh, she comes back to me and says like, hey, there's another movie that they want you, which is called Un- Unknown. And uh, so I had two movies back to back. And that's how I came here because Pan's Labyrinth was going to be shot in, in Spain and it was going to be cut here. So at that time, it made sense to move here for at least a year. I, I At that time, my daughter was really young. Uh, I think he, she was like five. So it made sense to move like for a year and see what happened and, and whatnot. So long story short is two months before starting the shooting Pan's Labyrinth, they called me and they say it's no longer a, a co-production with Mexico, Spain. Uh, it's more a Spaniard movie, so they are forcing us to include Spaniard people in key positions. And the people in production is already there. So it's pretty much uh, you're kind of like the only one uh, that we can cut, and that's how I got cut from, from that movie. And they said, but Guillermo says uh, his next movie is yours. Obviously, his next movie came and went and... and uh, <laughs> <laughs> his loss. Yeah, and it was not a problem for me because there was nothing I could do. And I understand uh, there's needs in, in film, you know? And uh, so, so, I mean, I didn't take it as, as a problem. But that was part of what makes me being here, you know? Yeah, I lost a movie because it was being shot in Canada and they were like... We've already got as many Americans as we can have up here. It's a co-production with Canada, so yeah, Canadian Canadian editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, it happens. Yeah, that happens. When you're watching dailies, do you watch them passively first? Do you take notes? Do you make selects reels? What do you do? Usually, my process for dailies is I start cutting as soon as I can because at the end, this is a lot about trial and error. Sometimes, when the director is conscious that of the importance of circling takes is really helpful because then it tells you uh, what he likes, he states about uh, performances or camera moves, especially performance, you know. So it kind of gives you a hint on what he likes and what he don't like. So usually I start using those and then compare with the rest of the of the takes. So you're starting right off cutting from when you first watch? Yes, yes. I start watching a little bit uh, the different angles to have an idea of what is in, in every angle and how I can use it. And then I start trying different things. I like to, before committing it to a, a specific way of a scene, I like to do a couple of trial and error, you know? Like starting this way, it looks this way, and starting with the wires looks this way, and what if I start with the close-up? And then you start realizing you have uh, pros and cons in every different way, you know? Yeah, I love that method of starting with the circle take. Some people wouldn't say that's the right way to do it. I love doing it that way because you start out with something that you know is going to be usable or that the director thinks is going to be good. And then when you watch the rest of the dailies, it gives you something to compare to. And also, you know, I'm never going to be in a wide shot for that part of the scene. Why would I worry about it? Or I know I need another close up. I wonder what the other close ups look like on this person, because you know, you're going to be on them because you've already cut the scene. Exactly. Exactly. And at the end, you're going to have to check what you're doing and take decisions and make lots of changes before you get to a place where you kind of like it, you know. But you're really doing that. You said trial and error and starting with a wide or starting with a close up. How many versions of a scene might you cut? What I do is I kind of duplicate a a scene 
you know, I start, uh, for example, I have the first three shots of the scene and then I duplicate it because I want to try starting with the close up before keeping going because it's gonna, it's gonna impact the rest, you know? It's not the same if you start with the white where you saw the geography or, or if you start, if you start a scene really close. So going from that, you might try, uh, cutting a little more or cutting a little less. So you might want to just duplicate what you have is probably a third or a fifth of a, of a scene and you duplicate it and, and modify it. That way you're kind of trying different things before committing to, to something you like until you see something you like. Sometimes, sometimes it clicks, you know, sometimes you go like, oh, this is the way, you know? Yeah, hundred percent. Get that. And approach to cutting scenes, we just kind of discussed, and also selects reels. Not everybody, obviously, not everybody uses them. Some people hate them. So, <laughs> yeah. the The reason I don't like select reels is because uh, when you're working with director, it's hard to to go back to that, just to the select reels. It works if if the director, for example, goes like, hey, "Do you have something uh, more serious?" You might go to your selects and, and find it. But oftentimes they ask you for things that you didn't select. Or they want to see all the takes. That's more, that happens more often, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I like this close-up, but uh, can we see the other close-ups you have? So it's easier to just go to the dailies and, and, and get them, you know? Do you remember how long your assembly was? No, not really, but it was way longer. <laughs> a rough estimate. What do you think? Two, I don't know. How, how long was the movie? Uh, it's under two hours. Mm-hmm. It's under two hours. I would say at least it was 20 minutes longer at the very least, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's common. What What was the process of getting from the assembly to the final? What, what are some of the things that changed either structurally or scenes that you knew you had to take out or how did that work? Pretty much we discussed that, uh, Angel and I, and took decisions, you know, you start polishing a little more and, and making decisions. Uh, it's not always easy because obviously things were shot for a reason. And when you have a, a good movie, things tend to be good. Well, always you need to, to big picture is first. So the big picture is what rules the rest of things. So when you see the big picture is a little long, then you need to to figure out what to do and how to do it, you know? Do you ever use like a scene board on the wall? Do you ever look at like having every like post-it notes that are kind of like behind your head right now, um, post-it notes that say this is this scene and then look at things in a big picture on a wall? Yes, I often use them. Uh, I don't think I did use them in this movie, but I often use those, and those are really nice, especially when you start moving things around, you know? In this case, we move a few things, but not that much. The script actually really worked very well, and there was some movement of scenes. There's always some of that uh, when you're looking for better ways to tell the story. Uh, Either you combine scenes or you move scenes or you, for example, you could use just a half of a scene and combine it with another one, make the idea complete, you know? Can you think of any specifics like that that you could describe or no? 
when they are starting to work in Black's uh, uh, auto shop, there was a lot more story. There, it was uh, it was in different moments, and we end up condensing it in in a single scene. You know, I can totally see that that would happen. Yeah, that makes sense. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for a lot of great wisdom and great ideas for editors. Hopefully, to uh, for them to absorb and and consider with themselves. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Luis Caballar. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a film-making or film-loving friend.